Welcome to WebRush, the weekly talk show that brings you stories of real-world development from industry experts and developers like you and me. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Walleen, Craig Shoemaker, and John Papa find out what it takes to write, deploy, and maintain apps that stand up to the demands of the real world. And now, here are your hosts. Well, hello and welcome back to WebRush. And today, I'm joined with Ward Bell, who, you know, sometimes has internet access, sometimes he doesn't. It's just kind of a come and go type of thing, isn't it? It depends on whether I've fed the hamsters that morning. <laughs> right. Doesn't it always come down to that? It does, because when they go on strike, I lose internet. Yep. Well, we got to try and keep things functional around here. And I guess that's what we're talking about, building functional web apps with our guest, Simon McDonald. So uh, if you don't know, let me introduce you to Simon. He's the head of developer experience at Begin, as well as a human Goodreads. He's had over 25 years of building web applications since the days they were written in shell scripts, of all things. And unfortunately, he still has nightmares about it. Simon, welcome. I hope you had a good sleep last night. Uh, thanks for having me on. And sadly, I didn't. I woke up at about 3 a.m. in a cold sweat thinking I CH modded some of the files correctly. <laughs> um, but such is life. And, and Word, I don't know. I, I have backups. I have chinchillas as well. So that when, uh-huh. you know, the hamsters go on strike, I can just like swap them in. That's, you know, you always got to have backups. Such good advice. Uh, fortunately, I have a complete menagerie here. And so I'm going to hook them all up uh, so that the elephants can participate as well. <laughs> well, we got the whole zoo working for us, which is which is pretty awesome. So you're here to, to kind of introduce us to and enlighten us on functional web apps. So why don't you give us the like the elevator pitch of what it is, why we're interested, where we go from there? Sure. Yeah, I'll give you the, the quick definition of what functional web apps are. And basically, a functional web app is more of an architectural pattern that you can follow. And the three main tenets of that architectural pattern are everything is built using cloud functions. Uh, It's backed up by a database, a managed database, in fact, so that you don't have to worry about things. And finally, everything is checked into source control using infrastructure as code. So at any time, you can reproduce the exact state of your application. So if if anything goes wrong, it's quite a a bit easier to roll back to the previous known good state. I always thought functional, you know, I thought I had always written functional apps. You know, those are the ones that work. But that's... (laughs) But that's uh, not what you meant. Uh, so you're into this functions thing, huh? Now, now uh, this isn't like, how is this related to functional program? Because I didn't hear that in what you were saying. It's not that, right? No, it's not like functional programming. It's more things are based on cloud functions as the main primitive for d- developing the web applications. But it does share a lot in common with functional programming, and that's that you want to have small, discrete functions that do one thing well. Um, so in that way, it's a little bit like functional programming. So, so what are the pain points that we're addressing here? Because we've got all these different ways of building apps and architectures and things of this nature. Like why... Did people decide like this is something else that we needed? Yeah, that's a really good question. And for for me personally, the reason that I came over to functional web apps as a way of, of building things, uh, I had previously worked on a, an extremely large uh, server side generated website. So basically, we were doing developer documentation for a Fortune 500 company, 
And it was internally based. So we had many different teams uh, sending inputs into this SSG. Um, what we were running into is that build times just got increasingly slow. As we added more and more documents to the build, things got way slower. Uh, so much so we had to kind of invent our own incremental build process in order to make things, you know, measurable or, you know, half decent to get this, this update into the application. Um, and then, of course, like any good software programming, we ran into scope creep and people kept on wanting to add more and more functionality to the application. That functionality was generally dynamic in nature, which was not what the system was designed for at all. Uh, so we started getting into performance problems where we were getting a lot of loading spinners, where we're having to make API calls back to the back end in order to get the dynamic data. On the other hand, functional web application kind of does everything from the server. So you are generating the HTML on the server. So any of that dynamic personalization that needs to be done, it's already coming down to the wire. So by the time it lands on the client, it's already there for you. You don't have to wait for anything. And because it's HTML first, what lands on the client before any of the external JavaScript is loaded is already usable to them. So it's just kind of, for us, an improvement over the way that uh, server-side generated sites had been working. So uh, is the typical app here one that's conveying information that the user looked for? Or uh, in other words, what's the, uh, this gets into the whole question for me of whether the server should be rendering pages and delivering stuff or whether uh, you want to have a lot of sort of client-side presence because there's lots of interaction between the user and the application that can be handled entirely client side with just occasional reaching out to the to the server. So, so I, I think a, a, a lot of people will want to know what kind of application is this good for, or is this important for, versus where it wouldn't apply. Yeah, and it the the application can be progressively enhanced so that we want to make sure that whatever ends up on the client is usable right from the very beginning, but you can still enhance it with JavaScript in order to make those dynamic backend calls. Um, a lot of the applications that uh, I've worked on with this type of paradigm are, you know, things like developer documentation, blogs. You can even be generating your HTML from Markdown and sent down to the client instead of having to statically pre-render it ahead of times. Um, and also, um, again, I'm going to show my Canadian here, but uh, I manage a hockey team. And I don't know if anybody else out there has ever had to manage a, a rec league team where you have to get 20 people together uh, and people are flaky and they cancel and they don't show up. Um, so I've actually built my own management software using this paradigm uh, where people can tell me whether or not they're going to make the game. And a lot of that stuff is just form-based web programming. Um, and when I initially reached to do this in like a React-based application, I started adding more and more JavaScript and things got to be quite large when all I really needed was, you know, three or four forms. Uh, and that was more than sufficient. Hey, Ward, you know, I was building an application the other day and I pulled in this really cool UI component, but it brought along a lot of dependencies with it. How do you deal with that? I don't like that, John. Um, it reminds me uh, that the AG grid, which is a, uh, an advanced uh, data, editable data table that we use in a lot of our enterprise apps because it, it addresses the complex scenarios we encounter. Um, AG Grid doesn't have any dependencies at all. 
Zero dependencies. Well, tell me why why is that good? Like what is the value of having zero dependencies? Well, it's it's wonderful not having to wonder if while I'm pulling that in, I'm also pulling jQuery in or Lodash or who knows what. Uh, in part because that's extra stuff coming over the wire. It's extra files that I don't know what they're all about. Uh, it means when my client security team has to evaluate this, they're evaluating AG Grid and not everything else that might be slipping in under the covers or something that we have to worry about there. Yeah, you know, it's great to see this day and age, you can have a zero dependency library that does something like complex data grid functionality. So all of you out there, do check out AG Grid at their website at ag-grid.com. So when, when you're talking about using functions for everything, I think kind of when we're in this sort of vein of architecture, people are often point to like Jamstack and, and some of these um, types of architectures, particularly for these sort of uses. And so we're using the server to do API calls and we're getting stuff back. But what you're saying is like our serverless function is going to be responsible for generating at least some HTML and then sending that as a payload. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And and that doesn't mean we can't use static assets. Obviously, you still want to use static assets for things like images. You don't want those to be generated on the fly. Uh, but what we have found is that even statically pre-generating some of the HTML over time becomes an issue, especially when you want to add dynamicism to it. So why not just have the server generated for you? And the state that we're at with serverless technologies is this is done and like, Definitely sub-second, but most of the time sub-200 millisecond timings. And it takes a million uh, serverless calls in order to, you know, spend a penny. So right. why that's, are that's you... That's compelling. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you adding a lot of complexity uh, when you can just do this dynamically? So what, what sort of frameworks or tools are you using within your serverless function in order to handle the, uh, the generation, the, the, the web server type code? The, the company that I work at uh, began, uh, so we have an open source project called uh, OpenJS Architect. Uh, and that is basically a layer that sits on top of AWS in order to be able to, to work uh, as, as functional web apps. Um, there's no reason why you can't do this uh, with Microsoft Azure or with Google Cloud uh, Platform. Uh, so there's, there's really no limitation that way. Um, but as for the generation of the HTML, uh, is that what was sorry? Was that what the question is? Yeah, it's just like well, you know, when we think of web servers, we think of Express or you know some of these other. That's like, what are you using within the the serverless or the the serverless function to do that aspect of it? Yeah, in in our particular use case, uh, we're using the API gateway from Amazon in order to be able to uh, send you to the correct location. Um, so. If you, we, I've definitely seen a use case where we had a monolithic express application uh, and we needed to convert it over into a functional web app. And basically the express app is handling all the routing itself. So what we had done is wrap the express server in a single serverless function and then let the express app handle the routing from there. And over time, what we would do is just bite off the individual routes and convert them over into their own serverless functions that were then handled by the API gateway until the Express app portion of it just went away. And we didn't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, I, I'm curious that you find, you know, and, and that you find that it's actually easier in some sense to write whatever it is to generate the page uh, in a serverless function rather than in 
straight up. Well, I'm not sure how you even do it, whether because um, I'm kind of used to using these front end platforms like React and, and Angular and Vue and stuff like that. Uh, so that's my mental model for how to compose those things. And I never, I, I don't find, I, you know how it is when, once you've been doing something for a long time, you don't even see that it's uh, a problem because it doesn't feel like a problem to me. Uh, and yet you expressed it as, wow, it's so much easier to do it functional. So tell me, tell me how I, do I still ha- have component? Do I write component, anything like components or am I just spitting HTML on the page? What am I doing over there? Yeah, well, it's. I guess it depends on how you want to implement it, but I totally get where you're coming from. Uh, uh, the previous company that I worked at, we were told to use React for everything, so I I grabbed that hammer and smashed many things with it. Um, but now that uh, we're looking at things uh, slightly differently, when it comes to generating the HTML. Um, what I would suggest that people more look towards is doing web components uh, because that's supported across the browsers now. And it's much easier to build kind of web components that are just going to work without having to install React and install a form library for React and additional hooks and Webpack, your Babel, your, all these other things that are required for the front end. And instead, you're just sending straight HTML down have some web components pulled in there as well for the additional dynamic functionality. Right. So, and so you sort of, you develop, I'm not even sure what the development process is is like um, for doing that kind of thing. Uh, Again, you know, you get so used to being freighted with these other, with these other tool chains. Um, So like if I was going to write a web component, I'm even trying to think, you know, I whip out my VS code and da, 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 da. And I've started writing this HTML, but I have to write JavaScript behind it. So I'm not sure how you make that smooth and put it into um, uh, a, a serverless function. I am obviously so ridiculously naive here, but uh, uh, that I'm asking must must seem like primitive questions. Uh, but maybe uh, maybe I have a few listeners who are like me. <laughs> well, well, what's the day in the life like if you do if you yeah, took like a regular web you form? Know, I want a new form. Fire me up. What do I fire up? What do I do? Yeah, so if you just wanted to build a a form-based application, uh, you would start by just doing an NPM install of Architects. So uh, once one of the things that Architect has along with it is our sandbox, and the sandbox allows you to do local development. The sandbox provides kind of uh, an emulation of the uh, Amazon environment for the API gateway running Lambdas, DynamoDB. Uh, so you just basically start off your project installing those dependencies, do your NPM start, and you have a local environment that mimics what you would have on AWS. So you could build like your get route, and then you start putting your HTML from the Lambda. Now, the technology that you use to do that it's completely up to you. You could just be spitting out strings. Or if you only wanted to use Architect as the backend API side of things, you could just have those lambdas return JSON. And in the static bucket, that's where you could build your React or your Vue or your Angular application. So there's no one right way to do it. Um, but as we've gotten more experience like with it, it yeah, you, as we've gotten more like experience with it, yeah, we've, we've yeah. switched over to using uh, web components. Um, so 
the way that an architect project is structured, um, the public folder has all your static assets. The source folder is split up into your HTTP folder, which is where all of your routes go. So if you're you know, going to get your main route, your player's route, your game's route, all of those things. Uh, and then we have a couple of shared folders. Um, one is called shared, and that's where you can put any code that is shared amongst multiple routes. And the views folder, it's just shared amongst any route that uses a get request. And that's in the in the views folder is where you would uh, put your templates for your web components. And so those web components are then copied to each one of the, the get routes uh, when the application is deployed. And that just makes the sharing of all the components and the code a lot easier for you. You have a lot that you do you end up with a lot of functions, uh, serverless functions? Uh, like what's a, give me a, a rough number of what you might end up with in a typical app. Uh, it depends on how complex the API is behind your app. Uh, for a blog, we, we converted our blog over from Medium to basically drinking your own champagne. Uh, the blog itself <laughs> only has, yeah, it's, be- it's better than eating your own dog food, right? Does, does anybody <laughs> want to eat dog food? First time no. I've heard yeah. that no, no, I, like I, like that. That. I like that a lot. I'm going to steal it. Yeah, please, please steal that. I don't, I'm definitely not the originator of that, but, uh, but yeah, please use it liberally. Um, so anyway, converting the blog from Medium to a functional web app uses three routes. It's a very simple application. So there are three ser- serverless functions in the background. Three, back, three serverless functions. That's all it takes oh, in order to, to run our blog. So we've got one to request content, like a, an individual article. You have one maybe to collect comments. So am, am I on the right track here? What are the three? Base, okay, so the three for us, uh, there's the index route which is going to list all of the blog posts. There's a, another route for the individual blog post itself. And there's a third route, which is the catch-all that will pull in anything uh, additionally that's missing, like uh, JSON responses or our 404 page. So it's a, it's a very simple application setup. Um, for, the, for the hockey team management stuff that I'm working on, um, I have, um, I think it's about eight uh, different uh, routes right now uh, for getting getting and setting things like the players and the games and then doing one other route which pulls everything together for me so I can see who is attending, who's not attending, and that gives me a better idea of like how many spares I need. So, so you, you have a request that comes in for an individual page. You're, you're going to the database, you're gathering all the data, you're building up the HTML, you're generating that, and you're spitting it out each time. And so what it sounds like you're saying to us is that even though you're doing that, that's still faster than pre-generating all that ahead of time? Yeah, when you have it backed by a managed database, your latency time for connecting to that database is like single-digit milliseconds. So it is lightning fast to get the data, so much so that you don't even really have to think about it. Uh, then generating your HTML and sending it down the wire is also in like sub 200 milliseconds as long as your function is already warm. Um, but there are ways that we can reduce this cold start and we can even talk about that. Uh, but things things happen so fast that it's not even really necessary for you to pre-generate a lot of these pages. And then because you're not having to get through the trouble of pre-generating a lot of things, you're reducing the complexity that you add in a lot of server-side generated uh, frameworks. Yeah, yeah, and there are a lot of problems with that. Um, 
The, did it sound it sounded to me like you have a function per route is that approximately right uh the you can structure it just to be a function per route but you can you know set up catch-alls um one of the things that i would suggest is that you keep your functions as small as possible so you want to make them single purpose uh the more things that your function handles the the fatter it becomes and the fatter your function becomes the longer the cold starts gonna gonna become uh, and that's the worst case scenario. And we want to reduce the worst case scenario as much as possible. Well, I was just going to say, okay, so you, you've you've uh, brushed up a, on cold start a few times. Why don't you, uh, it sounds like you got a story to tell there. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, one of the things that we investigated quite heavily earlier this year was what actually affects cold starts in the JavaScript environment. And um, one of the first tests we did is like, can we increase the memory that is available to the Lambda? Does that help with cold starts at all? And what we found that increasing the memory to the, the maximum had no effect whatsoever on how quickly your function loaded up. Um, then we decided to take a look at payload size. And as we increased the payload size, we were seeing slight differences in how quickly the cold start was happening. But what really impacted your cold start was how much JavaScript was parsed. And once you started adding more and more dependencies and those dependencies were being uh, parsed at cold start time, that's when we could see that kind of hockey stick graph of your, your cold start increasing exponentially. So the biggest thing that you want to do is to keep the amount of JavaScript that you parse to a bare minimum when you're building your functions. So while you can take an express app wrap it in one serverless function, ship it and declare victory and walk away. Um, that's not going to be the best experience for your users. It's a good first start. Then from there, you start to uh, kind of decompose that express app into multiple serverless functions. And, and that's also why you'd you'd you wouldn't really want to rely on any framework because they all come with no matter what they claim, they all come with the extra library overhead. Yes, I um, I installed one popular framework. I'm going to attempt not to name and shame them, but uh, it loaded 442 megabytes of uh, data into node modules. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially when you're fighting against cold start, that's, you know... It's like to load it up once and it stays there, and you don't really have to pay that penalty after that. That's one thing. But if you know your your traffic goes dormant and then you're having to do that over and over again, that's pretty rough. Yeah, it, it is. It's kind of crazy. If you had a situation like that where you were really married to a framework and you were going to migrate things to more of a functional web app architecture over time, what I would suggest is that you pre-render that and deploy it in the public folder, and then just make API calls back to the 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 functions themselves. Hey, John, I have this great idea for a mobile app. I want to use native features like the camera, photo gallery, and geolocation, but I just don't have the time to learn a new language like Swift. Yeah, but you do know JavaScript and web tech like React, Angular, and Vue, right? I do, but how does that help me? Well, if you use the Ionic framework, you can use your JavaScript skills and you get fully styled iOS and Android mobile components. Plus, it uses the Capacitor to talk to all the native device platforms. So if I use Ionic and Capacitor, I don't have to learn a new language. My JavaScript skills give me what I need to build a cross-platform app. Absolutely. And you can check it out at ionic.link slash webrush. I'll do it. So I, I get that. So, so now what you're sort of pushing, seems like you're pushing for, is lots of little, particularly as the application grows, lots of little functional 
function. I don't know what you call these things. Do you call them function? What do you call them? Yeah, it, lots of lots of smaller cloud functions. Yeah. Okay. Cloud functions. Okay. So um, this reminds me of microservices, which gives me the, the willies, uh, um, because uh, they're end up at least where a lot of people take that, you end up with a lot of moving parts that are, and um, coordinating across those multiple parts becomes a challenge uh, and both to maintain and to understand. um, And things can end up this thing's calling that thing, calling the other thing. So there must be a way of drawing boundaries that makes (coughs) makes that uh, tames that somehow. And you must have some wisdom on that. Basically, you, you could use this kind of pattern to create your own microservice. Uh, but when it comes to how do we you know, draw boundaries around things so that um, it's just easier to understand, that's where the shared section comes into uh, play. Um, you can you, you basically are writing the code once and then sharing it amongst all of the different cloud functions. So you're not re-implementing the wheel on, on each one of these cloud functions. I, I'm, pro- I'm pretty sure that doesn't answer your question at all. So, <laughs> uh, well, no, it's a it's a piece of the puzzle uh, um, dimension of it. I'm, I'm trying to think, sort of, what's the unit of work there? Is it is is it is it a piece, a chunk of real estate that's on the screen or something like that? Because where I've, I see people getting into trouble with with uh, microservices is that. Um, is is drawing the the seams. As a matter of fact, one of the one of the uh, later recommendations is that you shouldn't go to microservices until you've already lived with the application for a while, because then it's clear where the boundaries are. Um, but in your case, uh, I mean, but you know, they're usually saying, well, this you know, because this this service needs that service needs this other thing, or what happens over in service B depends on the things that had happened in services uh, X, Y, and Z. Uh, or Zed, if you're in Canada. So, uh, what? Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just throw a little Canadian bone out there, you know, and see if you bite on it. Uh, so, because um, you are the 51st state, let's let's admit it. You know, that's the way we look at it down here. Uh, uh, the way we look at it is that Minnesota is the 11th province, but I mean, <laughs> bravo. I mean, just uh, like, let's let's just think about it. They play hockey. They curl and they have weird accents, so they're basically Canadian. You can just I, give them to us. And you know, wow. Uh, yeah, sorry. you were talking about the microservices. Oh, approach is that where I was, was like, going? Yeah. So, so, so it's 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 this. That's where that's one of the ways in which microservices uh, fall apart. Is um, is that uh, they kind of end up these creeping inter- interdependencies in practice. Um, and leads to sort of confusion about what has to happen before what, and because uh, you get sequencing uh, 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 problems and so forth. But they usually, you know, so so we usually recommend that they are somehow um, related to an area of functionality, user experience that stays stable for a while. Uh, and you don't. Um, so I'm wondering if that's kind of the guidance on on uh, your functional, how many functions you have or where they are or in order to keep keep uh, things from having to 
have lots of mutual dependencies or one service calls another, calls another, calls another, that kind of thing. Yeah, and we would definitely recommend that one of your functions doesn't call another function that doesn't call another function because that's a good way to blow up your bill really fast. Uh, you could get into a situation where they just keep calling each other in an infinite loop and then you have to sign over your house. To, to your point, though, that's what the shared folder is for, right? So if you have common logic, you're going to stick that in there and so you're not calling each but other's functions. It's not functions. always common logic. Let's be clear. All right, a service is not logic. This is, you know, I needed, oops, I needed to go get the uh, bank routing numbers and I have to call another service to do that. Oh, I, when I get over there, oh, I can't do all the bank routing numbers unless I know the, you know, your shoe size. Oh, well, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's, what ha- that's what begins right. to happen. From the perspective of like what route you hit, you're, so you're going to hit the route to get the index and it's going to display everything for you. So it's going to build the HTML. And it's going to go and request all of the data that it needs at that point in time in order uh, to build that HTML. So if you get the bank routing numbers and then you need the shoe size numbers, that's like another API call that the backend is going to handle to marshal all that data together before it creates the HTML to send over the wire to the client. And for routes that if two of the three routes need the bank routing number and only one of the routes needs the shoe size, well, then you can put the bank routing code into a shared module that is uh, copied to all the different functions. And therefore, you're you're not duplicating that stuff all the time. Okay, Simon. So I, I'm going to throw another trendy word at you. I get the feeling that this is really more about micro apps than it is about what was called microservices, whereas, you know, so that each service is kind of a micro app. Does that make any kind of sense at all? Or, or what, where, how should we think about it? Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and I would say it's it's not microservices uh, and it's not even really micro applications because it's one contained application. Uh, but you have to think of it not as like a, a single page application, but more of a multi-page application, kind of the, the traditional way that we had built uh, web apps for a long time. So if the user is coming in and they're requesting, you know, I would need to know all of the games that I'm going to be playing in. So that's one route. And if I need to know like who's going to be there, that's a totally separate route. So it's part of the same application, but these pages are generated from two completely separate routes. Got it. Got it. So they're, they're cohesive in that sense because it aligns with the user's experience. Yeah. And if you... If you want to, you can continuously like enhance things with more client-side JavaScript, uh, but you don't need a lot of client-side JavaScript to build a lot of these types of applications. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Simon, this has been a lot of fun, and I, I think this is probably a topic that a lot of people may or may not have uh, had a chance to, to brush up against, so it's really cool, and, and we're grateful that you're here to, to enlighten us on it. So what we like to do usually at the end of these shows is kind of end up with a final thought. And of course, I'm always excited to hear what Ward has to say. So Ward, what, what, what do you got for us this week? <laughs> oh, God, what do I have to say? I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with current events. And what could be more incurrent than than the Oscars and the slap? And I'm just <laughs> no. thinking, uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking, who do I want to slap? But uh, so, Simon, I'm going to ask you, who do you <laughs> where, do you, where do you go on that? Ooh, that's my final thought. Oh, no, no. Of course. Wait a minute. Wait, we have to put we have to stop and say, of course, we abhor violence in all of its many forms. OK, now you're ready. To go. <laughs> wow. OK, so I have to go somewhere from there. 
Um, my final thought is I enjoy every single time I get a chance to hang out with Ward because it's <laughs> never know where he's going to go. So it's always so much fun. Simon, how about you? Sure. Well, I mean, let me answer Ward's question. Uh, some of the, the preamble we talked about, I, I recently got hurt playing hockey. So the person I want to slap is the, the guy who checked <laughs> me into the boards in a non-contact game. So I won't, again, I won't name Dan on this podcast, but he knows who he is. Uh, but, but final thoughts for me, uh, I'm, I'm obviously I'm not here trying to sell anybody on anything, but I would really like to just let people think about you ain't going to need it. Um, the web and web browsers have like really progressed since the last time you probably took a look under the hood. So if you can like just start a new application and try not to use any frameworks and see how far you can actually get now, it's really outstanding how much better browsers have gotten while you weren't even looking. So that would be my final thought. I like that a lot. Simon, thanks again so much for, for joining us. To our listeners, thank you for joining us every single week. Of course, thank you to all of our sponsors who are always uh, there for us. And we will see you again next week here on WebRush. <laughs>